Um, well, if you have your Bibles, open them up to 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.18. If you're visiting us this morning, you may or may not be aware that we're in the middle of a, a series on the local church called The Dearest Place on Earth. Uh, it's a quote from a Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said that surely the dearest place on earth is the local church. And um, we're up to uh, our message this morning, which is all about mission and the dearest place on earth. Uh, it's a topic that is really close to my heart. And I pray that the Lord would stir us up this morning by way of a reminder. Um, why don't we read this passage together and then I'm going to pray for us. 2 Corinthians 3. 18 through to 4 6. Paul writes the following. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but... By the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we we want to exalt you and thank you for your word. A word that is perfect. A word that is able to fully equip us. A word that is your very own words to us. So Lord, soften our hearts. Help us to hear. Help us to be changed by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, mission and the dearest place on earth. Why is this topic so important? Uh, I've been thinking about Uh, that question this week and kind of spurred another question in my mind, which is, well, how many people are actually Christians here in this city? 
Uh, I went online and tried to look at the ABS statistics from the last census back in 2011, and uh, they came up with a figure about church attendance, right? So 15% of Aussies attend church at least once a month or more. That's 15%. And you might think that's quite a lot, but that's across all types of denominations of Christianity. So that includes Catholics and Orthodox and, you know, um, all the different varieties, you know, Pentecostal churches, everything, all under one big umbrella. That's 15% of uh, people attend church. That's three and a half million people. Uh, which, by the way, is more than halved since 1972 when it was 36%. Now, 11% of those are roughly Anglicans, 12% are Pentecostals. So let's just guess of that 15%, let's be conservative and say 35% of those uh, people attend a Bible-believing church on any given Sunday. And let's just assume that that 35% of 15%, so 5% of the population roughly attending a Bible-believing church on any given Sunday. And let's just assume uh, that that for the sake of the argument that all of those people that attend church once a month or more, that 5%, let's assume they're all Christians. Now, we know for a fact that they won't be because going to church does not make you a Christian. It makes you a person who goes to church. Um, But let's just assume they are. Sydney, we have 5 million people. That would come out with a figure of, taking that number, 250,000 people in Sydney who are Christians. Now, that seems like a lot of people, but it also means that there's 4.75 million people who are not. Let's take it a bit closer to, sit, uh, to where we live. Let's take it to the Hornsby Shire. So 2015, best estimate, Hornsby Shire, 170,000 people. 5% of 170,000, 8,500 people. That means 161,500 people that are not trusting in Christ. I mean, those numbers are staggering, aren't they? And here's where it gets shocking. Where will those 161,500 people be 100 years from now? The Bible is clear. Apart from Christ, man faces judgment. Eternal, conscious torment. In many ways, those numbers are completely overwhelming. And so the question I want to look at this morning as we open up God's Word is, what's our part to play? What does God want us as a church to do? As I've mentioned, the title of this message is Mission and the Dearest Place on Earth. If you're taking notes, I've got three points this morning. Firstly, the origin of our mission. Secondly, the nature of our mission, and thirdly, the power of our mission. And really, I want not to teach you something new this morning. I'm sure for many of you, this is going to be a very familiar lesson, but I want to stir us up by way of reminder on a familiar truth, and that is that our mission as a church is to preach Christ. God opens blind eyes. We have a part to play. God has a part to play. We preach Christ. 
he opens eyes. And that's really the one take home from this morning. If you get nothing else, I pray that Lord would uh, give you that message and bring it home. Well, let's get stuck into our first point this morning, which is the origin of our mission. Uh, we're going to be looking at this passage from 2 Corinthians, and I just want to give you a little bit of a context to help you get stuck into this passage as we kind of look at the nitty-gritty of it. Corinth is a, uh, or was a key trade city in Greece. It was rebuilt kind of a hundred years earlier by Rome. It had been wiped out in some of the earlier wars. And one word that would describe Corinth is posh. It was a posh city. It was a wealthy city. It was a showy city where people would be boasting all the time in their status. It had a huge building boom uh, around about the time that Paul's letter was written. It had the world's longest roof colonnade, which is like columns all in a row and like a roof obviously across the top. It was the home of the Isthian Games. Um, It was a big, posh city. There was a big disparity in uh, Corinth between the wealthy and the poor, so much so that about a third of the population were actually slaves that were employed in the city, obviously working for rich owners. And this kind of disparity led uh, one writer of the time when Paul was writing to to make the following comment about Corinth and why he would never go there again. He said, I learnt in a short time of the nauseating behaviour of the rich and the misery of the poor. That's what Corinth was like. It was a big, showy, it was a posh city. And Paul had previously been there and he'd worked as a tent maker, making tents and, and planning this local church. And then, after some time separated from the church, he'd written this first letter. Now, in his first letter to the Corinthians, you may or may not remember, but in chapter 5 of the letter, he really rebukes the church for welcoming in this like really you know, kind of immoral brother, and you might be wondering, how is that like really strong rebuke received? It wasn't received well at all. In fact, Paul's strong previous letter had caused quite a bit of upset and division in the church, and people had begun to kind of align with different leaders in the church, and as a result, these kind of dishonest preachers had kind of come into the church as well to kind of leverage off some of that division for their own benefit. And so Paul is writing this letter really to uh, entreat and encourage this local church that they can trust in his apostolic leadership and to remind them of the work of the gospel that's been entrusted to them all. That's what Paul is on about in 2 Corinthians. Well, let's get stuck in and read just the opening uh, verse of that passage again, 3.18. But I want to focus in on three life-changing words, three words that have incredible implications for us. And that's the first three words, and that is this, and we all, and we all. You know, what Paul is going to talk about applies to every single one of us. You see, when it comes to mission, it's really easy to think that mission is something that only really applies to pastors and evangelists. I don't know if you've thought that way before. Um, Because of the ordination and stuff going on, afterwards this week I was in the car and um, one of Charlotte's friends from school, a teacher at school, you know, jumped in the car and having a chat. And the first thing she says to me is, Brendan, how are you going now with your new magical powers? And um, I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's what you think, like something like magicals sort of happened. And, but we can kind of fall into the trap of that same way of thinking, you know, acting like there's something magical about pastors, you know. But the Bible's really clear. The office of an elder, a pastor, is noble, but 
the people that do it are just men. We're called to a task of shepherding and feeding and protecting and equipping, and that is a noble and difficult task, but, but we're just people like you. We're no different in many ways from, from, from you. And mission is not something that's just for pastors. It's not something that's just for the professionals. Paul is addressing the whole church and is saying, regardless of your season, regardless of your skill level, God is calling you to join in. Mission is something that all of us are called to. Let's, let's read that verse again. 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And we all are being transformed. Do you ever wonder, church, what it would be like to meet Jesus. Do you ever wonder that? Like, what would it be like to meet Jesus? Well, the good news is you are a work in progress, being transformed, not into Jesus, because that would be a bit strange, but into his image. God is at work transforming your life into the image of Jesus himself. Isn't that an amazing truth? You're being transformed into the image of the glory you see in Jesus Christ. Do you realize, church, that God is at work in your life transforming you? He began that work even before you were born, even before he created the earth. He is working in your life right now. And he will finish that work on the day you die or on the day that he returns. It's an amazing truth, but, but how does it relate to mission in the church? Well, Paul explains read with me the very next word the very next verse verse uh, chapter 4 verse 1 he says therefore therefore having this ministry by the mercy of god we do not lose heart church how easy it is to lose heart in mission how easy it is to be discouraged in mission. You know, uh, some months ago, about midway through last year, John Bush and I, we, we decided we want to really outreach in Waitara. And so we started this uh, jogging club with a view to um, meeting people in Waitara, helping them to get to know Jesus, um, Waitara joggers. And um, it's been great. We've got some great friends like uh, Rudy and Iggy out of the jogging club. Um, but as the kind of months got a bit colder and it started getting darker at 6 o'clock until it was like freezing cold and pitch black, so I kind of understand why people stopped coming, but um, slowly people dropped off and stopped coming and being a part of our group and, and we were feeling discouraged. I mean, do you, does that resonate with you, feeling discouraged? I mean, have you ever 
um, lost heart in mission. You know, maybe it was a friend or family member or colleague, and you've been, you've been loving on them, and you've been talking to them about Jesus, and, and you've been praying for them, and what you see in their life is no change, no fruit. And you find yourself discouraged, close to giving up. Well, Paul says the solution is this. Remember your origin. Remember the mercy of God to you. With unveiled face, we're being transformed from one glory to another as we look at Jesus Christ. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Having this ministry by God's mercy towards us, we do not lose heart because we remember that Christ first had mercy on us. It's the gospel, isn't it? That Christ came and he died and, and suffered in, that, in our place. More than that, he, he was raised back to life. He's ruling and reigning and he's in us and, and working in us and transforming in us. And he'll bring that work to an end. And it's all his mercy. You know, church, when tempted to lose heart, we need to remember our origin. We need to remember where our call to mission first came from, from God's mercy towards us. Well, that's our first point this morning, the origin of our mission, which is the mercy of God towards us. But more than that, point two this morning, the nature of our mission. You know, one of the things I love about this passage so much, I love it so much, is that it doesn't leave you guessing about what God is calling you to do in mission. It is so crystal clear what God would have for us. And it's in verse 5. It says the following, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What we proclaim... That's, this is our bit. What we proclaim, it's, it's very simple. What we proclaim, what we are called to do by God is to tell people about Jesus. This is something that we are all called to do. This is the ministry that we all have as a local church. We all have this ministry by the mercy of God. But it's not that easy, is it? It's, it's not that easy. And sometimes even the simple things you know, I find it difficult. We were um, having dinner just the other night uh, with some friends that we're trying to uh, reach out to, and, um, and uh, uh, they're coming over, and I thought, oh, should I say grace or not? And then I was like, yeah, I should say grace, you know. Like, I'm a pastor right now. Of course, that's what pastors do, right? They say grace. So, but I'm just like, okay, should we give thanks? And my heart's like, you know, we get nervous and and fearful. And, and Paul knows this about sharing Christ. And so he wants to help us with a list of four temptations. He wants to help us with temptations we face in preaching Christ. Read with me verse 1 again. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Four different things from this passage. The first, he says, is he's renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Literally, he says he's renounced hidden, shameful things, hidden things of shame. You see, Christians can be completely honest and open about their intentions in sharing Jesus with people. There's no need to hide. There's nothing to hide, not even our failings. Um, You could read this as, on one hand, hiding shameful intentions. Um, We have this unveiled face um, to see God's glory, where these works in progress, we're being transformed into Jesus' shaped people, and we've got nothing to hide, no shameful intentions to hide whatsoever. On one hand, some people um, at Paul's time really did have shameful intentions in preaching the gospel. Uh, Paul talks about them in chapter 2, verses 17. Um, He calls them peddlers of the word. That's literally people that are in it to make a living. People that are telling people about Jesus just because they want their money from them. They're dishonest. They had shameful, dishonest uh, motives in preaching the gospel. But it's also possible to be deeply ashamed of your good intentions to share Christ. It's equally possible to have hidden things of shame that are actually good intentions. And Paul says, because we have this ministry, this work of telling people about Jesus from God's mercy towards us, we we reject that kind of operating. We've got nothing to hide. We can be open and honest with people, but not just that. Secondly, he says, we refuse to practice cunning. That's behaving with craftiness or trickery. It, it literally means like a readiness to do anything, to do absolutely anything, despite how dishonest or dishonorable it might be. You know, we don't need to trick people into receiving Jesus. We don't need to kind of manipulate people into trusting in Christ. You know, when I was uh, many years ago in uh, Tonga, Pacific Islands with church, um, we would find um, that many people were going to the Mormon church. And one of the big reasons people were going to the Mormon church is that they were being offered uh, education and money if they'd get baptized in the church. Paul says we refuse to manipulate people. We refuse to practice cunning. We don't need to try and create an atmosphere for someone to trust in Christ. People need to genuinely weigh the cost in following Jesus. But not just that, not just refusing to practice cunning, we refuse to, and perhaps the greatest temptation for us, we refuse to tamper with the Word of God. And we face so many challenges in this area. The word he used there means to falsify or to adulterate. It's a word that was also used of dishonest wine merchants who would water down their produce to make it go further. We don't water down the message. We don't change it to suit what people want to hear. Now, on one level, that's easy enough to say, but... Here's where we face that temptation. When the friend or colleague says to you, so what do you think about marriage? 
when the colleague at work says to you, so what do you think happens to people of other religions who don't believe in Jesus? We face a temptation. The temptation to water down what the Word of God says. Now culture is repelled by the message of sin and judgment and we can be so tempted to leave those bits out. But you can't even understand the gospel without them. How can you preach a message of salvation if there's nothing to be saved from? We must preach a gospel that includes our universal sinfulness. Like Paul writes in Romans 3.11, No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We must preach a gospel which includes God's wrath against sin. Hebrews 9.27, And just as it's appointed for one man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And part of the consequence of being faithful to this word is that we need to accept that people will at times be offended. We must, must always preach the gospel with sensitivity, with love and respect, but, but people will at times be offended. And yet we can have this idea that somehow if we're faithful on mission, if we do it in the right way, people, people will never really take offense at what we have to say. That's not the message of Scripture. The message is fundamentally offensive. We must not water it down. We must not tamper with the Word of God. More than that, fourthly, Paul says, and I love this, we reject proclaiming ourselves. This is like so liberating to know. Read with me uh, verse 5, jumping down what we read before. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. It's such a glorious truth. It's such an amazing truth. It's so liberating to know that we don't preach the gospel of Brendan Willis. We don't preach the gospel of ourselves. It is so good. And yet, unintentionally, we can do this when we put up a false front with people, when we pretend to have it all together, when we don't let people in to see where the gospel meets our failings. The message we unintentionally give people is that Christianity is all about being good, that it's about winning, that it's about having it all together instead of that Christ died for sinners like me and that God is at work in us, transforming us by his mercy and grace. You know, uh, one instance where this just so, uh, so affected by this is back when I was in university, I remember um, going out with some of my friends at college for drinks and one of my friends, um, she just kind of had enough to drink where you're kind of like a bit too honest and um, if you know what I'm talking about and um, she said to me, and it just stuck with me, she said, Brendan, if I'm honest with you, it's like you act all the time as though you're too good for us. And that, that just cut me to the heart because I realized that I was putting up a front with my friends, that I wasn't being honest about my failings. 
and that I was unintentionally preaching not Christ, but myself. You see, you might not be on mission because you think, I don't have enough faith, or I'm not a good enough Christian. What's well, okay because you're not preaching you. We preach Christ. We tell people about Jesus. It doesn't mean that our lives are not important. Our lives are so important. Read what Paul says in verse 2. He says, we commend ourselves to the conscience of all. Paul says we commend ourselves. That means we bring together in a trusting relationship. We, we show ourselves as worthy of trust. Paul tries with everyone to do everything that's possible to show them that he's worthy of trust. He's not into rock-throwing evangelism, like, you know, like the gospel, but you're throwing rocks, like Jesus died to save you, you know, from a distance, and then you kind of run away. Like, Paul wasn't into that kind of evangelism. He says a couple of chapters over in 2 Corinthians 6, 3 to 8, he says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, the Holy Spirit, by genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Paul says we commend ourselves. We try to remove every obstacle. We try to show that we're worthy of trust, but we do not preach ourselves. We preach Christ. And isn't that a liberating message? And, and that's my heart for this church this year. You know, my heart is so much that that we would be a church that's faithful in preaching Christ. You know, we think about mission at Sovereign Grace in four different uh, steps. Connect, you know, just connecting with people, caring for them, trying to love on people. And then the third step is communicate, telling people about Jesus, preaching Christ. And that is the nature of our mission. You know, Rico Tice, uh, one of my heroes... Uh, He says the following about this passage. He says, We don't talk about ourselves and point to ourselves. We preach Christ. We talk about him with others. The gospel is so powerful because it's the power of God to open blind eyes and bring faith. We talk about Christ. God opens blind eyes. It is my job and your job to tell people about Jesus, who he is, why he came and what it means. It is not our job to make people respond. It's God who opens blind eyes. You communicate the message, then you pray that he would do the miracle. This is so liberating. What is successful witnessing? It's not someone becoming a Christian. It's someone hearing about Christ. It's not you winning the argument. It's not you having all the answers or giving an eloquent speech. It's preaching Christ. Successful witnessing, I love it, is not someone becoming a Christian. It's someone hearing about Christ. We're responsible for preaching Christ. 
God opens blind eyes. Well, how do I know that I'm being faithful to God in mission? The answer to that question is, are you preaching Christ? Are you telling people about Jesus? And if you're anything like me, you know that God is calling you to preach Christ. You just find it really hard. And that's why we're not ending the message there. We're going on to point three, the power of our mission. You know, it can be so easy in a mission to be discouraged when we don't see any fruit. In order to avoid discouragement, we don't only need to know what our mission is, that's our part, but the power of our mission, which is God's part as well. We don't just need to know what God's calling us to do, we need to know what God is capable of and will do as well. And the problem that we face is this, that the problem that exists in unbelievers is worse than we think. They are spiritually blind. Read with me verses 3 and 4 of our passage. Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul writes, just like Moses used a veil to cover himself up to prevent the Israelites from seeing the glory of his face after he met with God, just like Moses used a veil to cover his face, the God of this world, the devil, blinds and veils the eyes of people so they cannot see the gospel. The problem with unbelievers is that they are spiritually blind. The problem is not that their lives are too good and they just don't need anything. It's not that they're too intelligent and they have watertight arguments to the contrary. It's not that their faith in their religion is too strong. They're just too religious to receive Christ. Their problem is that their eyes are veiled, that they are spiritually blind. And friends, we cannot fix their problem. We cannot. They are blind. There's no amount of loving them that will fix the problem. There's no amount of persuasive argument that will fix the problem. There's no atmosphere, there's no gift of communication that is going to help them. They are spiritually blind. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, they are spiritually dead. You know, Francis Chan has such a helpful illustration at this point. He said, you know, imagine if God said to you, church, what I want you to do is I want you to go over to Rookwood Cemetery after this uh, message. And what I want from you is one. Just one. One person raised from the dead. Who are you going to bring with you to help you? 
Would you bring with you a band to play some music? Would you bring with you the best communicator you know to really give a persuasive speech? Is that going to help you? People are dead. And what they need is a miracle of equal magnitude. Just like standing over a dead corpse and a God can raise that corpse back to life. We need a miracle. We need God to break into people's lives. We need people that are dead in their transgressions to come back to life. We need people to pray. We desperately need God to intercede. But this is exactly what God is able to do. God opens blind eyes. Read with me verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God who said, let there be light. What's he referring to? He's referring to Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. The same power that created light is able to turn on the lights for someone who is spiritually blind. The same power that turned on the lights for us. I, I just want to uh, put up a photo uh, over here, and it's amazing that we have people in our church that are talented enough to take uh, photos like this. This photo that's uh, going to come up on your screen in a second um, was taken by Paul Mock, and uh, I don't know if you're. It's an amazing photo. It's a scene from uh, New Zealand and uh, looking off. Uh, one of the mountaintops, I think near or on a Cradle Mountain. And it's a panorama of, uh, or uh, it's a panorama shot of just the beautiful mountains and, and the, the night sky with the stars shining in the night. And what you can't see probably from the distance there because it's too small is just the detail of the innumerable stars that are, are shining in the night sky. You know, as I was looking at that photo this week, I was just reminded afresh of the magnitude of the universe that we live in. You know, 50 billion stars like our sun in our universe. At least 50 billion universes like our universe in the known universe. Uh, universes like our gal- galaxies, like our, ours in the known universe. 50 billion times 50 billion stars the size of the sun. Incredible magnitude. Uh, I was reminded this week of uh, another picture, uh, which we don't have this morning, which was taken by the Voyager as it reached the edge of our solar system and as its final act, it pointed its cameras back towards Earth. And the image is known as the pale blue dot. 
The earth in that photo is just this dot the size of a single pixel in the photo. And one uh, commenter says, all of your life contained on that dot. All of human history contained on that tiny blue dot. The universe is vast and we are tiny and yet we worship the God who said, let there be light. You know, knowing who God is, it changes everything. That he alone has the power to open blind eyes. Why? Because he made our eyes. He sustains them. I mean, just pause and, and just notice with me your breathing. As you take a breath in and out, God himself is sustaining you even in this moment. He has limitless power. You know, one of my prayers this year has been, I've been asking God, would he save 10 people in this local church this year? You know, God may not answer that prayer, but church, he is able to. He is able to do far more than just save 10 people. He's able to save thousands and thousands of people. He is the God who said, let there be light. And there was. Church, we are not responsible for fruitfulness, only faithfulness. Are we sharing Jesus? I want you to pause and think about the people in your life who don't know Christ. Maybe close your eyes and think of a family member or a neighbor or a colleague or a friend. I want you to ask the question that I'm asking myself at the moment, and that is, am I preaching Christ? Am I telling them about Jesus? You might want to even just get out your phone and type down a single name of someone you need to talk to about Jesus. Name my heart, church. I'm not, I'm not trying to condemn us this morning. I want to motivate us. I'm going to assume this morning that like, like me, you find this is really hard. This is really tough. But here is a way you can change. Here is a way you can put off and put on. Find some people in your circle and just tell them your struggle. Tell them honestly that, like me, you chicken out, that you get nervous, that you worry what they will think, that, you, that you, you worry what people will think of you. And ask them to pray. Pray for boldness. Pray for words. Pray for the Holy Spirit to light them up. And there is great hope. Because Christ is with you. Christ is in you. Christ is everywhere you go. Christ is coming again. Christ, a hundred years from now, you will be with him and this life will be but a distant memory. We were blind. He sent his son. He shone into our hearts and he wants to give us the joy of joining in his work. Well, church, in closing, the origin of our mission is the mercy of God towards us. The nature of our mission is preaching Christ, not ourselves, The power of our mission is the God who opens blind eyes. Our mission as a church is to preach Christ. God opens blind eyes. Why don't we invite the band up as uh, I close in prayer for us.
Lord, this morning we are humbled by your word and we're reminded afresh of our many failings in this area, Lord, where we're not faithful to you in preaching Christ, where we're tempted at times to water down your message, where we're tempted at times to preach ourselves, where we're tempted at times to say nothing at all. Lord, will you forgive us? Lord, this morning our minds are cast to the 160,000 people in our neighborhood who are headed for an eternity in hell. Our breaks for them, Lord. Would you help us to be faithful? Would you help us to be faithful to you in preaching Christ? And would you save many? We ask this with such confidence because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just